Marcel. And this is Isabel, and you're now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners, as we always say, our podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving and shaping the world around them. I think it's pretty fair to say that the TikTok dance challenge has become one of the more seminal cultural touchstones of our time. It seems like learning these 15-second quick-paced choreography seems to have kept many people sane throughout the height of quarantine and also turned countless songs and people into viral sensations. But as these dance challenges go viral, who gets credit for and benefits from their success is fraught with bigger questions about the politics of labor and cultural production in the age of the social media influencer. The influencer is arguably the most talked about figure in marketing today, as well as the most divisive. Through producing curated content and attaining coveted brand sponsorships, these social media users have transformed the meaning of celebrity and, in the process, the relationship between technology, identity, and capitalism. To dig into understanding some of the key issues of influencer marketing and its economy, we are delighted to have Anuli Akanebu with us today. Hey, so great to have you on. Uh, just a bit of background on Anuli. Uh, she's a scholar practitioner. I love that phrase, by the way. Um, so she's a scholar practitioner working at the intersection of business and communications and culture and is currently a PhD student in sociocultural anthropology at NYU, where she's working on a dissertation uh, that examines how race and desirability factor into the success of Black identifying social media content creators or influencers in the creative economy of Atlanta, Georgia. So Anuli, we're so excited to have you on the show to learn more about your work and also more about your perspective on, you know, this pervasive influencer culture. Um, And so I guess we find it pretty important just to kind of lay out, you know, some key terms to start out with. And the big one is this concept of influencer, right? So curious to start out perhaps by maybe hearing your take on how you would define um, what an influencer is and what they do. Sure. I mean, the word influencer, it is also a very gendered word and we can get into that, but one thing that I share with people just to kind of help distinguish terms is that all influencers are content creators, but not all content creators are influencers. So to be an influencer, it's usually somebody that a portion of your income, whether you're doing this full-time or part-time, comes from partnerships and collaborations with brands who think that you promoting their products, their idea, their thing, whatever it is, will sway other people to invest or purchase that product, idea, or thing. So that's the definition of an influencer. Thank you for clarifying that. And I think it's also interesting how you bring up the distinction between content creators and influencers. I think that we want, we'll definitely want to get into more of that later, but We're also super interested, I guess, to hear more on your perspective on why do you think, what do you think motivates people to become influencers? Because it seems like I was actually reading in preparation for our chat, 
um, a, a study that I think Lego did with about 3000 kids. I think there were ages like eight to 12, uh, about, you know, like the, the epic question, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And most of these kids today aspire to be YouTubers or, or vloggers, content creators in this, you know, influencer marketing economy. So it's definitely, you know, a, a new type of aspiration that's shaping what, um, the youngest people in our society envision for themselves, see as being possible as a fulfilling type of life. So I guess to follow up on that question, what do you think motivates people in general to, to get into this line of work? I mean, everyone's reason for getting into this line of work is different, of course, but I would say this is just a larger part of the trend of entrepreneurship. Like you're seeing a lot of people, especially in the past year, I don't know if you've noticed maybe people in your lives or people that you've observed that you don't know are quitting their jobs, right? Like we have learned that, you know, working for these companies that don't care about us or working for these companies that kind of feels unstable um, it's not the move anymore. So influencing is another form of entrepreneurship for people where they feel like they can um, have the flexibility and the freedom to make their own hours and to work in, in a way that they're the CEOs of their own lives. They're CEOs of their own brands. Um, so I think that's one reason people want to get into influencing because it is a form of entrepreneurship or it can be for them, similar to like, you know, gig work, or freelance work is just like another variation of the larger gig economy that we're in, in a way. But another reason is because it's fame. You know, they see people on Instagram or TikTok and it looks like they have these glamorous lives. Everybody has a Birkin, everyone has a Dior bag and all of these things and people want that for themselves. To make money off of being yourself is ultimately what a lot of people want. Like you want, to be accepted for who you are. And in a way, influencing is a very extreme version of that. Mm, that's so interesting because I feel like in the beginning of, although actually I'm not sure how one would track the exact history of like, when did it, being an influencer start or at least like start being named that? And maybe that's something we could talk about, but I feel, yeah. like, I feel like in the beginning of at least when I was on social media, which was at this point, probably like 10 years ago now, um, that people would would kind of like inadvertently become influencers. Like they would have um, big followings for whatever reason that wasn't related to them aspiring to sell products and then companies would ask them to sell things. And now I find it so interesting that that's something that would be like, like as Marcel, you pointed out, like an actually a career vertical that you would, personally you know prepare for and in terms of like of being accepted for who you are it seems like this kind of like this like illusion or like concept of of you know the ever elusive authenticity is at the core of what an influencer wants to be perceived as like authentically them and I guess I'm wondering like what why do you think that's so important to it or or so so key to the formula oh it's it's why influencing as a even a career path even started because i used to work in a previous life i worked in marketing and the company i worked for edelman every year that they would do this survey called the brand brand barometer of like 
what consumers are looking for. And you started to get to around at least 2015 is when I remember it most specifically, people as a consumer started paying less attention to uh, products promoted by experts or products promoted by actors and celebrities and started to look to products promoted by what they called quote unquote, people like me. So influencers started to get real even bigger at that time as far as the corporate corporization of it, because they are perceived to be somebody that's just like me. Like, even though they have a following, sometimes they don't even have a following because we have not just mega influencers, but nano and micro influencers, people that even have less than a thousand followers on Instagram, for example, they're perceived to be somebody that's relatable to you. And um, henceforth, you think that whatever they're selling to you is like advice from a friend. That's why reviews are so popular. Influencers are kind of like supposed to be, right? Everyday people that are similar, similar to me, oh, I might buy these pair of pants because this girl who has a similar like body shape as I do um, and a following likes the same pair of pants. So that was the perception of it. And that word authenticity is always at the center of influence. And even if it's a performed authenticity, you know, they're supposed to almost in a way perform like they're like you. But now it's interesting. We're getting to a moment, I would call it like a new stage of influencing where um, influencers have become celebrities and celebrities have become influencers. It's like a blurred, everyone's playing in each other's sandbox. So what does it mean to be an influencer if it kind of has become a little bit detached from the original idea of paying somebody that seems to be like an everyday person to promote a product when now they are also becoming celebrities in their own rights. Yeah, it's interesting to hear like inklings of all that nuance that I that I guess characterizes how like the structure of the influencer economy, like nano, micro, like, you know, how all of that is developed as the industry has become um, kind of developed over time. Um, can you talk a bit more about those distinctions and like how they, how they come about? Like what is a nano influencer and how, how are they different from a, I don't know, mega or I don't know mm. the different classifications, if you could explain that. I mean, it all depends on the brand and or the marketer, but if someone to be considered a mega that's usually typically like a million followers plus, like they're like, they're considered to be like, not exactly household names, but they just have a lot of followers. And it's usually judged usually based off Instagram followers because that's the platform where like selling, like it's like the platform that's made for selling. And you can see in the um, direction that Instagram is going in as a company, they want it to be a selling shopping platform. So this is usually judged by Instagram followers. Um, for example, but um, micro is less than that. That might depend on who you talk to. That could be like 10K or less. Nano is like smaller. That could be a thousand followers or less. But again, all these numbers vary depending on who's counting. This weekend I was watching, I was feeling nostalgic and watching some like Soldier Boy music videos. <laughs> and I, and, and for, oh gosh, what's the... Crank that music video, you know, yeah. how he has the the scene with the my face, MySpace interface. And I was like, wow, Soldier Boy was like, I mean, in my sort of layperson's history of social media influencing and who I would kind of name as some of the pioneers in that space, like 
I would think of Soldier Boy for sure as one of those people who really knew from very early on how to like mobilize technology, kind of nascent social media platforms to sell his music and to build a brand, I guess. And then Isabel shut up after this, but I'm curious to hear, (laughs) would you also name Soldier Boy as the original influencer? How, I guess, would you historicize you know, the, de- the development of, of this industry and maybe who were some of the, the, the early, the early people who kind of like set things off. We did not plan this at all, but I literally did a hill project dedicated to soldier boy. Oh <laughs> my God. Yeah. I like, I lied. This is a hill I'll die on. Soldier boy is like an OG when it comes to like the new digital marketing wave. Um, so I did a project when I was a master's student and it was about the year 2007. And it was called Soldier Boy, tell them about the year 2007. And I made a digital website to look like Soldier Boy's MySpace page from the year 2007. But basically the idea is that if we're talking about historicizing like the current moment, I think that is one year that is often ignored. But if I tell you all the things that happened in one year, you're gonna be like, wow. Like that is the year that iPhone came out. That is the year SoundCloud came out. That is the year that Twitter, even though that came out in 2005, as did YouTube, both of those platforms made changes to like feature changes that totally changed the way we used it. So you had uh, Twitter retweets and hashtags began to be used more in 2007. YouTube had the Renaissance. I don't know if you remember um, Chocolate Rain. That was like a big song that was popular around that time. And the guy Tay Zonday that came up with the song like Chocolate Rain. Um, he was one of the first content creators to get deals off of a YouTube that he made in his home. He was on South Park. He had a Dr. Pepper commercial. Like you didn't really see that before 2007. I could go on about that one year, but I positioned it as a year that was important to black content um, production and consumption. And part of that is because of Soldier Boy, who whose song Crank That came out. And he was one of the first rappers, or A, the first rapper on YouTube, but also B, the first rapper to like get out of the box when it came to marketing and using digital media. And he's still doing it. Like now Soldier yeah. Boy, he has transitioned to TikToks and he's making songs that work for the TikTok generation. So he's he's always been ahead of the curve. He's still ahead of the curve and he's only, 30, 31. He's in his early 30s, but so I feel like I kind of grew up with him. Totally. Okay. I knew that there was there, there felt something transcendent and important about Soldier Boy. Yes. <laughs> so I'm glad to see that it's also um, kind of along the lines of how you would kind of talk about the rise of this um, business for sure. Wow, that's super interesting. 2007. Wow. I can write a book just on that one year. Maybe you I will. Should. You will. Honestly, so could I, and it wouldn't even be another person. <laughs> 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 I feel like that's definitely one of my standout years as well. Great music um, that year. I was going to say for anyone our age, big time. Um, but I, um, I'm looking forward to Soldier Boy getting the the intellectual credit that he deserves, which he also feels he deserves from various interviews that he's done. Yeah, and he's um, right. <laughs> and he's right. But um, we would also love to hear, um, you know, more about your research on influencers specifically. Like, first of all, what led you to be fascinated by this? And secondly, what exactly is the angle that, that you're studying? Sure. I mean, so I worked in the marketing industry for over six years. I did strategy and consumer research. So I would see like I'm going from 2013 like 
2019, like my prime years working at an agency. So I saw how things would shift and the, and the influence of black content creators specifically. Like a lot of brands, they do this thing um, where you basically go on Twitter or Instagram or social media just to get ideas for your campaign. Like that is a big part of the research is going on social media. So they're taking phrases or styles of dress or aesthetics that black people are producing and coming up with and kind of like regurgitating that and selling it back to us as if it's an original idea that the brand came up with. So I just noticed that a lot of like black people are coming up with these ideas that were became so trendy and so used by everyone else and not profiting off of it. I would also see brands work um, with different content creators. And this is similar to um, Marcel's own research that you would have like the general market campaign and then you'd have like the AA, like African-American camp uh, campaign. And I would just see the budget discrepancies between those campaigns, despite the fact that um, anything that's kind of AA led got a lot of deep engagement, but not the like money for that engagement. So I kind of made all these observations in my years doing um, strategy and consumer research and I've seen the back end. So like everything I'm talking about, I got receipts, right? So I started to think about like, what is it like to be a content creator as a black person specifically where in a way you are commodifying your identity in this very, I mean, Marxists will hate it, right? But in this very extreme way, you are commodifying your identity and self for profit. But at the same time, it's like also black culture, anything black people produce automatically becomes a commodity because our history in this country as a people started as our bodies as commodities. So I was just very interested in all of these different layers and also just is influencing content creation the future of work? You know, as we become detached from like offices and organizations, is this the future of work? So all these ideas kind of led me to think more about it. And I would be doing these different research projects for the brands I would work for. And you know, people were like, okay, what's the gist of it? And I'm like, okay, here it is. But I learned that I loved doing the research and I hate doing the selling. Like, oh, I gotta do all this research just to sell people some soap. So I love the research part. I didn't like selling the soap part, <laughs> just to be quite honest. So I decided I want to go back to school and kind of explore these issues more. And you know, as a PhD student, if I could get paid and like funded to explore something I'm very interested in and explore stuff that I would watch on my own, like I'm highly like involved in like digital culture myself as just a fan like OG, like blogger fan since like 2007 myself. Um, that's cool. I think there's a way to write about or to think about influencing th um, through the lens of different identities where you consider race, age, ability, nationality that I haven't seen yet. Because when I mentioned before that influencing is very gendered, it's, it's gendered and raced as like white women or the, like the traditional influencers, mobby bloggers. So most of the research on the influencer economy are on like white middle-class moms. You don't always see as much or you haven't really seen as much about black people despite our influence on popular culture. So that kind of led me to do my project. I will say when I started the PhD program, I wanted to study black content creators in LA 
But over the past year, I kind of felt like that wasn't where my heart was anymore, even though like LA is a big boom in town for the influencer economy. I felt that a project in LA would be about black people trying to navigate white spaces. And I really don't want to like hold up white people as like the measure or the yardstick for success in any way. I want it to be specifically about like these experiences of black people and center that. So I moved it to Atlanta because you're seeing a lot of social media trends, particularly on TikTok, for example, stem out of Atlanta. We could talk about the renegade, that whole trend started in Atlanta before it became, you know, commodified by non-Atlantan people. Um, so I decided to move my work to Atlanta because Atlanta is a city that is really known for black leadership and black creativity. So a project in Atlanta would be about how black people are creating spaces and opportunities for themselves, which is where I align more, um, not just professionally, but just personally, uh, my interests as a human being is about centering black people without comparing it to white people or non-black people. Mm, I always I always love hearing more about your your work and kind of people just origin story, your origin story in general as to how you how you get to where you are and uh, particularly your experience in this time, very, still very racially segmented, racially segregated marketing business in the United States, which I think people know intuitively. I mean, just if you're a consumer in this country, um, you might have an inkling that there may be some behind the scenes work that's that's really all about the commodification of race and targeting people based on these types of categories. But you have direct experience, of course, in seeing how that kind of all takes shape and the research, the deep research that goes into um, doing this type of work. It's also super interesting to hear. I wasn't aware of the, but I'm not surprised of like the mommy blog, the white mommy blogger, suburban mom, this type of prototypical, um, influencer right because it gets me thinking too Hmm. about just like the history of you know marketing in the united states and how the very notion of like the mass market is not all in the in the sort of post-war 1950s wasn't just imagined as like a white family but the white woman suburban mom figure was such a kind of trope that really in many ways shaped consumer culture in in this country and a lot of mythologies about whiteness and commodifying whiteness in a lot of ways um so to still hear does. that yeah exactly to hear that that is still such a you know tr- thread even in this um new iteration of what you know marketing is becoming in the digital age is like um pretty fascinating um your focus on Atlanta too. I, I was hoping if we could like talk a, a bit more about that. Cause I mean, I'm sure you, you um, watched the, was it the New York times documentary did, yeah. uh, did about the con the content houses. Yeah. Um, right. That New York times reporter. So I, I guess it would, would be really cool to hear you talk a bit more about more about the nuts and bolts of like the black creative creator, digital, whatever, influencer economy in Atlanta? And what role do these content houses play in being these kind of nexuses, these these hubs for this type of, yeah, entrepreneurship, creative entrepreneurship? I mean, where do I start? I was literally in Atlanta last week. Um, I was working on the second season of my own podcast, Black in Real Life, and it's going to be all in Atlanta. And the idea around it is just like, what is it about this city where it doesn't just um, 
kind of lead the way when it comes to like the digital economy, but now politics, music industry, like, you know, like the sound that we hear in music is very rooted in what was originally in Atlanta sound like that trap beat. And it's, and now you've seen movie industries and, you know, like television and film moving their productions to Atlanta. Like, what is it about the city? And that's what I wanted to find out. So I'm still learning, obviously, but some of the things that make Atlanta stand out um, as a city is that compared to, for example, New York and LA, there is slightly um, lower cost of living now. It's increasing because it's, gentrification is very real. So it has increased in the cost of living, but still, you know, more affordable currently than like LA and um, New York City. It's also becoming what's considered the Hollywood of the South because of all the te television and film industries moving there. There's also a big technology scene in Atlanta, but also when it comes to like black content creators or like black creativity in the city, it's because that is a city that has a legacy of black leadership, black mayors, you know, black, just black people in charge. I like the people I talked to in Atlanta, it was very interesting. They had growing up an experience that I never had that around them, they saw black teachers, black doctors, black professionals. So it made you feel like, oh yeah, we do all of these things. Like you just kind of grow up with this mentality that black people can do anything because you see it around you. Whereas if you're a black person that may live outside of a city like Atlanta, like I did, I, I was raised in like the Maryland suburbs. I can be like, well, I had my first black teacher in when? Sometime in middle school? Like. <laughs> It's a different reality. I wasn't raised around all of that the way that um, kids in Atlanta are. The you can have you can see the bigger possibilities of what you can do as a black person. There's also a, a very deep hustle mentality in that city. It's always been a city that was connected to the arts. Even when we talk a lot about like the Harlem Renaissance, for example, they were having similar renaissances in cities across the country, including. Atlanta, it's always been an artistic hub in itself. So I'm trying to learn more about the city myself. I think right now at this time, you're seeing so many trends start with people that live there. So my one of my favorite case studies, because it's just most to the point is the Renegade Challenge from TikTok. So that was started by a teenager that, lived in the sub that lives in the suburbs of Atlanta, Julia Harmon, and she just was, you know, making the dance up in her room. At first she put it on Dub Smash, then she put it on TikTok. And then you saw how she, she did the dance and the dance was to a song called Lottery by an Atlanta-based rapper, K-Camp. So again, music is a big part of the scene in Atlanta. So right there, you have two Atlanta-based people that came up with this trend that everybody, not just nationally, but internationally started doing the renegade. It didn't become, you know, popular until, you know, these white girls from Connecticut um, started to do the dance, but let it be known that it started in Atlanta and so many trends, like Soldier Boy himself is from Atlanta, right? A lot of people who are famous online, you'll see, you'll find a connection to Atlanta, particularly black people, you'll find a connection to Atlanta. So I'm still trying to figure out what is in the water in this city. And for me, um, my research in Atlanta um, 
starts in the 90s. A lot of people associate Atlanta with the civil rights era and Martin Luther King Jr. And that is true. And that's a deep, important part of the city's legacy. But the reason I also want to focus on the South is to talk about these places that are often associated with the past, the historical past, and use them as case studies for not just the modern present, but the future of work, the future of, of life. And to me, Atlanta presents a, a great case study for that because of just what's happening now in the city and like the ways it's influencing multiple um, industries. So for me, I think it's important to, to look and see what's going on in a city like Atlanta and not try to compare it to like the West because we often talk about social media as happening in like LA or Silicon Valley where it's also actually really happening in cities like in the South. And you're seeing also culturally a migration, a reverse migration of Black people from the North to the South. So this is a time to look at and see why that is and kind of learn more about, about the city in that way. So like I said, my research starts in, 1990, in the 1990s. I start with um, Andre 3000's speech at the 1995 Source Awards, um, the anniversary of which was just a couple of days ago, August 3rd. Um, so 1995 Source Awards, he says the South got something to say. And that is a time and if you're into like hip hop at all, it was all about the, you know, Northeast, like the New York rappers versus like the LA rappers. Nobody was really checking for the South. So when they won, I believe was best new artist, they got booed. And Andre was like, nah, we are coming with something. And then you kind of see the renaissance of Atlanta as a Southern city start to kind of grow out of that time because the next year you have the Olympics, um, 1996 Olympics. And I start with that. Like that is a deep, rich history that begins in the 90s and it informs the Atlanta that we see today. I can go on and on and on, but um, starting with the 1995, 1996 and thinking about not just Atlanta as a city, but also like digital technology, 1996 is another tentpole year when it comes to technology as well. So I kind of start my own work there. Wow. Yeah, this is the way that you're bringing together, you know, Atlanta as a, as a space, as a site for innovation and also the, the deep, you know, um, history with respect to, to race and class um, and how all this kind of ladders up into what we're seeing today as this kind of ongoing evolution of creative culture production um, in that city and how it's connected to, you know, the culture of, of American identity, the culture of capitalism. There's so many different rich parts of your research that um, kind of situating in Atlanta is super fascinating. When I was watching that documentary, um, the New York Times uh, profile, I guess, they, they focused it on these content houses, which I find to be a really like, fascinating phenomena that I think are also really revealing of the, what seems to me, and I'm not really like deep on TikTok. I watch a lot of TikTok compilations on YouTube, <laughs> mm. uh, which is another thing. Um, but like, it see, it, it, it appears to be these, these content houses. First of all, the fact that it's a lot of this production is uh, focus on these domestic spaces to me is really interesting like how 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 intimate it's almost like the brands are like really living with you like in in the house it's kind of this entrepreneurship and work 
yeah. life really there's no it's just like it's just kind of one orb but also just how racially segregated they are it seems and and kind of atlanta tiktok content or i guess it's a content house in general i don't know if it's focused on tiktok that that documentary focuses on really brought up this issue of you know, cultural theft and intellectual, theft of intellectual yeah. property that is kind of at the core of, you know, the cultural culture of capitalism in this country, the core of, you know, how racial capitalism operates. Um, and it gets me to thinking about wanting to ask you to talk about some current events, um, which is this, the, the TikTok, the black TikTok um, strike um, that kind of just sees headlines over the past couple of weeks. Um, I was curious if you could talk a bit more about um, that strike, like how, what do you know about, you know, how it was organized and, and what kind of implications, if at all, do you think that this type of organizing amongst black influencers can have to address um, this ongoing um, theft of wages, theft of, of, of credit and attribution that is so on, uh, ongoing and onstanding, but um, rears its head again in the influencer economy with the renegade challenge, for example. Yeah, I mean, to quote Lizzo, I've been made for this one, turn it up. Um, because the influencer strike, I, I've just been waiting for like a movement to happen because how many years have like the ideas of black people been taken and commodified by damn near everyone else and no money goes to the content creator. Like one of the most egregious cases is like Peaches Monroe, right? She came up with the phrase on fleek Everybody was saying on fleek just a few years ago. They had shirts that said on fleek, stores were using it. You know, our coffee is on fleek. Do you know the Peaches Monroe shortly after that came out? She was trying to come up with her own um, cosmetic line so she could be an entrepreneur. She had, I believe, an Indiegogo campaign for it, but she could not raise enough money at the time to start her own venture. But you see brands making millions off of her phrase. Everybody's using it on TV. Everybody is saying that people have shirts to say, you can go on Etsy and type on fleek. I'm sure you're going to find thousands of listings. Everyone is profiting off the works of black people except for the black people itself i mean it's truly an american um phenomenon right like we built the white house maybe we took us how many years to live in it that type of thing so when you think about uh content houses like the collab houses like it's called a collab crib and there's the ballot house um why in atlanta is because if you remember in the documentary, one of the guys from the collab crib said, oh, I went to LA. I tried to do the influencer thing in LA. I just didn't fit in. You know, my big black self did not fit in. Like they were trying to make me smaller. So going to Atlanta city, not only can you get a house for a decent price, because you notice the difference between the LA houses, those are like mansions and the Atlanta houses are more like um, homes where families would actually live in, like more, um, maybe like upper middle-class families would live in as opposed to like celebrity mansions in LA. Um, you can kind of see how a city like LA may kind of push out black people. And that's why a lot of um, black creators are moving to Atlanta. But to go back to the TikTok um, strike, what happened is that I, I think you can trace it to, um, that's thought shit. Megan Thee Stallion's song Thought Shit came out and everybody's like, okay, like this is the hit song. What's the dance going to be? 
people are waiting for black content creators to come up with a dance and black content creators peeps this. We come up with a dance, we do it, but then you all do it. You get more views than us. You get brand deals from it. You, you know, just like the Renegade Challenge. You know, Charlie and Addison Ray did the Renegade dances. They whole career came up from the dance of created by a black girl. Like, like she, people weren't really checking for them before they started doing that dance. They started getting brand deals because of that. So black people kind of peeped this pattern. The content creators peeped this pattern that we come up with these dances, you take them, you profit off of them. What would it look like if we just went on strike and didn't come up with the dance? What dance would you come up with, you know, without us? And that was the funniest thing of the um, TikTok strike is that when the black content creators said, hey, we're not going to come up with this dance for this song that we know you want to dance for. And what did the white content creators do? They literally just put their hands in the air and walked away. Like their TikToks are putting their hands in the air, walked away. Mind you, the song gives you directions. Hands on your knees, shake your ass on that thought shit. You, she, Megan told you what to do and you still refused to do it. So it was just, it was hilarious to me just to see what would happen without black people giving everybody content to copy, you know, how people fared on their own. And it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Eventually, you know, some people started, some people started coming up with their own dances to the song. And I think business came back as usual. Personally, I wish the strike would have been a larger movement and a longer movement, but I do understand that TikTok for many people, not only is it their way of making money, but it's also a way of expressing themselves. So, you know, when does a strike actually hurt you as a content creator? So I think they, um, maybe personally, they had to balance, like how long can we actually go and strike if like this is a platform that we want to be on and we actually need to be seen on. What do you think the outcome of the strike has been in terms of awareness or perhaps like an effect on the pay gap? Like Marcel and I were reading that $10 billion is, the, is basically like the global market budget for brand endorsements for social media. And yet the obviously as all structural inequity is reflected on the macro scale to the micro scale, like a prism, that that gap happens across any type of employment or compensation, even things that you know aren't corporate. So do you think that this strike was successful in ways? Or like could you talk to us about the pay gap also, like in particular? I'm not sure if it if it changed as much. Like I think for a couple of weeks, you know, when it was being written about people are like, oh look at the influence of black people. These people are like clueless without us, but the larger pay gap conversation happened last year um, during the social justice movement, like Black Lives Matter, because a Instagram page came out called Influencer Pay Gap. And that page had people send anonymous DMs to the page creator to share like, hey, I'm a white influencer. I have this many followers. This is what I made. Hey, I'm a black influencer. I have this many followers and this is what I made. And they posted that and you can see the pay discrepancy of you know the different content creators. So that was a conversation that was happening particularly a lot more last year. And I think the strike from this year is just a continuation of those things. But I would love to see more impactful change. But um, what always happens is that we talk about these things and it's like a big issue and then things kind of settle, the dust clears, and we go, quote unquote, back to business as usual. We just kind of go up and down talking about it. And I wish 
I would like to see a larger movement start, but you know, that speaks to the issue of work and labor, right? Um, there are several people who have tried to start kind of unions, like American Influencer Council, for example, like unions for influencers, but similar to starting a union for gig workers. There are all these individual people and you're trying to like bring them together, it's like herding cats. But how can you actually make a, a systemic change in an industry where people are all contracted, basically contract workers? I think the influencer economy can learn a lot from other what's called face work industries like modeling and acting, which models and actors are also contract laborers and any and they've unionized and they've also, um, particularly the modeling industry, even exotic dancers, I, I think there's a connection that can also be made. Um, all of these face work careers where your success is based off of not just your aesthetic appeal, but also your personality set the groundwork for influence. And so in a way, influencing is not that new of an industry, it's just a new evolution of other face work careers. So you can kind of learn from the labor movements in those careers, most recently the labor movements for exotic dancers and sex workers. Right, I think it, it's, it's, it's interesting how the influencer economy, despite being, you know, in some ways incredibly straightforward, what the basis of, of you know, the exchange is, it's also very opaque. You know, like yeah. even I, I feel like don't, you know, even as someone who uses Instagram every single day, I don't really quite understand like how I'm being fed certain information. And of course, like this is just as much about tech companies, opaque algorithms for ranking and distribution and distributing content as it is about, you know, the personalities or the brands fueling it. So how do you, I guess like we would, we would like to talk a little bit about this. Like, how do you think that these, you know, trade protected formulas also very divisive impact who experiences success as a social media influencer and what kind of biases exist? Like I see a lot of people um, who I follow talk about being shadow banned. Yeah. Talk about, talk about feeling like their accounts are being disabled or they're receiving like threatening messages from the app and it being related to race and identity. So I'm wondering if, um, what you think about this? I mean, there's been a lot of great research done um, about algorithms and how they can be uh, very oppressive Right? There's literally a book called Algorithms of Oppression. Uh, and I think that's just a part of the larger conversation that needs to be had about these um, companies because these algorithms are not just robots. They're, they're things made by people, people with biases and people with flaws. The Intercept did a great investigation about TikTok, for example, I believe it came out last year. And they talked about like how certain quality of videos are, are more likely to be seen in your For You page. They're looking for what they call like more aesthetically pleasing backgrounds, which when you kind of break it down the way that they did in the report, you can't, you can't live in the hood and, and have your content go up high. They wanna see like 
upper middle class trappings. That's why it seems like everyone on, on TikTok has like a pool or everyone on TikTok has like marble floors or a big kitchen that they can do dances on, a big kitchen island. It seems like everyone on TikTok is like a certain class level and that's by design. That's what the algorithm is pushing up content that looks a certain way aesthetically and also is lighter in color. So from that New York Times investigation that we talked about with the collab crib, um, the special that you can watch on Hulu that also follows the longer form article. One of the TikTokers, I remember this because it stood out to me. She talked about how she likes to wear her hair color dark, but she knows as a darker skinned um, black woman and having darker hair, her content isn't going to be pushed forward as much. So she has half of her hair dyed rainbow and she had half of her hair dyed dark. So when she did her videos, she would push her hair to the side so you can see the rainbow because it made her look lighter. And she noticed that she got more engagement when her hair is lighter because she, she can't lighten her skin, but she can lighten her hair, for example. And you also see that in the way that filters automatically lighten the skin. There's this, these aesthetic cues that they want people to follow that they think the algorithm likes and the algorithm is assumed to represent what we like as opposed to the biases of their creators. Instagram is very similar like you talked Isabel about um, shadow banning. I've been seeing a lot of content creators that I follow particularly black and brown content creators in the past year saying that you can't see my content as much and I noticed that like there's some people I used to follow all the time and I'm like oh I guess they haven't posted in a while and then I'll go to their page manually and then I see that they had a new post a few hours ago. I just didn't see it anymore because it does seem like their work is being suppressed. So you can actually go and change your Instagram settings and you can um, remove the filters because by default, depending on your phone and depending on your accounts, for a lot of people, Instagram has um, settings under their security that filters out what they call, quote unquote, like um, political content. So if you're somebody that you know, posted about Black Lives Matter, for example, yeah, there's actually a likely chance that your, your content has been suppressed. You can literally go into your settings and remove the filters and then you'll probably start to see some people that you haven't seen in a while because uh, Instagram kind of flagged their content as political. Just the idea of like black people's like advocating for our humanity is considered a political act according to these um, algorithms. So that is a conversation that is being had and should continue to be had because it doesn't matter sometimes how quality your content is and how much work you put into it if the algorithm isn't going to push it. For example, one of my favorite bloggers, and I just want to shout her out, Monroe Steele, she's New York based. She makes the best YouTubes. It's quality every time. I don't know why this woman doesn't have a million subscribers on YouTube and she's been at this game for what, 10 years? And there are people who I've noticed, like No Shade, have lower quality content than she has, and they easily got to a million. So it's, I don't know who is, you know, who, like who is behind these algorithms and what their ranking is, but there are people who are making quality content that don't get the love that they deserve. And it's not because people don't want their content, it's because their work is not being seen by the amount of people who may be interested in it. 
You, you also mentioned too that a lot of these conversations, while I could imagine are, you know, top of mind for the, for the influencers and creators themselves kind of were thrust into the, you know, national spotlight or conversation in the midst of the, of some of the racial justice uprisings that were happening last summer. Um, and we also saw how brands and, you know, marketing decided to, you know, also kind of jump on on the bandwagon and suddenly become, you know, civil rights crusaders, <laughs> um, you know, in a variety of ways. Um, and I, I guess I was curious to hear your thoughts on how these types of, you know, corporate um, marketing uh, racial justice stints have, um, you know, affected has there been any movement forward with this because I feel like there's a lot of pledges during that time yeah um how do you think that's affected the industry I think I guess one one example I'll propose that you probably already know about but I saw in the news recently was um Logitech has some kind of um you know creator a uh, black BIPOC you know that's the new marketing classification for if you're not white uh for BIPOC creators they have this kind of like incubator program but they did something that, that I think kind of got launched during that time but they did something pretty interesting um they uh partnered with um, a pretty famous choreographer named Jacole Knight I think he did the yeah. um, single ladies dance um and I think he's pioneering a type of copy copywriting yes. infrastructure for for dance in general but also trying to get that that type of um legal framework to TikTok dancers and so I think they uh, Logitech had this whole you know ceremony where uh, a couple of really uh, well-known TikTok dancers, including some of the people who created the Savage Challenge, and I wish I knew their names. I'm sure you do. We should can tell them out. Um, have their moves copyrighted? So I guess that's my long-winded way of asking: Like, do you think that um, these brand performances and social justice activism um, have kind of moved the needle in terms of getting black creators their their just due, or is it just a, a more marketing, right? That has, that really has no substance. It's all marketing, but I will say like, shout out, her name's Kiera Wilson. She came up with the Savage Challenge and also the, the I believe they're the Nene twins that also came up with their own dance for the Savage Challenge as well. So it was, yeah, two of them, Kiera Wilson and the Nene twins both um, were awarded with those um, copyright patents, I believe. Um, Jacob Knight, he also does a lot of um, work for Megan the Stallion, I believe. I think he did the body dance. Anyway, the, you know, in a past life before marketing, I actually graduated from Howard and my major was legal communications and I wanted to go to law school and study intellectual property law. And I was always interested in these um, issues of copyright myself. So another thing that's up my alley here. The US, when it comes to rights for artists is drastically behind other countries like France and Japan. You know, when you think about, for example, the fashion industry, because fashion is considered a utilitarian item, it's hard to kind of actually go out against a company that copies your work. Similar to um, choreography, you, uh, it's actually very hard to um, create a copyright for dance steps. So what they're doing is a great step. I'm not sure what the legal boundaries of these copyrights are because currently to try to copy a dance move, like if 
um, Alfonso Ribeiro wanted to copyright like the Carlton dance. That's a very hard thing. That's why it was, that's why um, that whole thing with Fortnite and when they were taking dances that people did and they were charging users to pay for their um, avatars and characters on the game to um, do a little dance. Um, it was hard for the creators of the original dances to um, sue because trying to trademark a, a choreography or a little dance move is hard. It has to be a certain amount of steps. I did a separate project kind of about the shoot challenge that came out a few years ago and I kind of traced it. And I talked about like Fortnite really helped spread that challenge, but it's because it did it to the detriment of Black Boy JB, the rapper who came up with the shoot dance and the shoot song, because they basically took his you know, intellectual property, profited off of it, and he couldn't profit off it in the same way. So I think what Logitech is doing is a step in the right direction, but they're not doing it out of like philanthropy, right? They're doing it for us to talk about it. They're doing it um, for promotion. Like I've been behind the scenes in these meetings, What's everyone talking about? How can we, there's literally a word for it in the marketing industry, it's called newsjacking. You take what everyone is talking about, what's trending on social media and you try to tie your brand to it. So that's exactly what's going on now. Like everyone's talking about racial justice and social justice and these phrases like body positivity, this and that. So how can we make our brand or tie our brand to what everyone else is talking about so we can get news headlines. So the company I work for was a PR company. So that is what you do for PR. Like Logitech is great at getting great PR for this. But if it's something that they really cared about, they probably would have thought to do it before. But now that it's profitable, that's why they're doing it. So last year, for example, you saw so many brands say, like, we're, we're pledging this, we're pledging that, we're doing this. And if you look at now, and you look back on last year, not much has changed. Not significantly enough. Are they paying content creators the same, like more or the same amount? Like black content creators, are they getting their just dues? You know, how many black people work for these brands themselves? Did they change their hiring practices? Like they want us not to follow up and check. They just want to stay accolades. Like I can say very candidly, my own experience in this game is that when I was working, I got the opportunity to go to Cannes through a, a brand that I worked for and they wanted to promote people of color in the advertising industry. So they chose about 15 of us who they saw as like the rising stars in the industry, this is HP. And they said, we're gonna send you off to the Cannes Lions, which is like the Oscars of marketing. You're, you're gonna get a week in Cannes and you're gonna get all this career development. And we want to show you that we want to invest in your careers as like people of color in this industry that doesn't always um, praise people of color. So it was a great opportunity to go, but they only did that program one year and they stopped doing it because the person who was in charge of it, their um, head, their chief marketing officer left the company, moved to Facebook. Like I'm giving you all the tea right now, like left HP, went to Facebook. That's the so, Lucio guy, like Mark. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Antonio Lucio. Antonio, also the same. Yeah. <laughs> so he he went to, to Facebook, I believe, and then they stopped doing it. And I followed up. I was like, oh, are you doing like a new class of the people? Are you like, are you going back to Cannes? Like, what's up? Oh, we just don't see the ROI in it. Like once you have once your advocate 
for a diversity program leisure company, who's gonna pick up the mantle? Like what infrastructure do you have in place to continue these things so they're not a one-off thing? So once Antonio Lucio left, they're like, what's the ROI on this? We're not sure if we're, if we're getting money back from this investment because it was a PR play. You know, I was featured in CNBC Business on, on, on their website. I did a video interview. Uh, you know, like there were articles that they wrote about this program to show that they want to support the next generation. And then it just fizzled out. Like that's real talk. It's, it's cute for the moment. And then you move on to the next trend. And that's what companies always do. Like just in my career from 2013 to 2019, I can point out when I started my career in marketing, you didn't really see brands really talk about diversity. It wasn't until 2015 after, you know, you had Ferguson and everything that those conversations began to start. And then Fenty came out and brands got shook. And now everybody's talking about they had all these shades and they care about diversity and stuff. So you can, I can kind of see in the course of my own career, brands going from, oh, we're not, you know, we're not really talking about diversity to like, by the end of my career, I started with like not getting to work on any like, like um, products targeted towards black people to when I left, all of my projects were products targeted to black people and people of color. And that was in a six year span at one company. Wow. I feel like, I mean, having, having brief, uh, I work in journalism, but having briefly worked in advertising myself, mm. I have definitely experienced, as you said, the behind the scenes conversations around some of these things to like my absolute horror. I feel like it was, it was funny because at that time, Marcel was working on her dissertation and I was just like live reporting. <laughs> like, you won't believe this shit that I'm hearing. Um, and, and she was also doing, you know, internships and, and various in-house research. But I feel like, you know, as you said, because, because all, because capitalism itself is so reactive and yeah. brands are so reactive, these plays have already in such a short amount of time become so transparent because they're constantly changing. So it's like, how long will this can, you know, this charade even go on or, and, or does it even matter to brands if people realize it, it's a charade? But I think that what that leads us to is that we did want to ask you a wrap up question as we're almost out of time about kind of like the nature of the influencer economy itself. And like you had mentioned that you, that, you know, people are perceiving, I'm not sure if it's you personally or just it's a, a way of thinking about what might happen next in the market, but the influencer as potentially the future of the worker. And so I've heard that conversation, but then another conversation I've heard and I'm ourselves well, is that, is that the influencer economy is a bubble and that it can't possibly last. And so I'm wondering like, what do you think that the future holds for this industry? I mean, one of the reasons I even started to go into this research studies because of the observations I made. And I had told clients like, hey, I see like the discrepancies in like the budgets between like your AA campaigns and your like general market campaigns. And they'll be like, no, that doesn't exist. We treat everyone equally. So then I realized that I would be doing all these studies and research, you know, programs for these brands. And then they'll tell me to my face, oh, that's just, that's just your opinion. Like that's just your one person opinion. I was like, but y'all paid us thousands of dollars for me to lead 
this national study and now you're not taking it seriously because all of a sudden it's like my opinion. So then I realized that how people kind of work is that I had to be the scholar that does the study that a journalist will pick up, write about for people to see these discrepancies as a real thing. So part of my research is kind of like, like advocating for black content creators so they can be like, here is proof. A study has been has been done. There is proof. Some people wrote about it because that's just kind of how the world works, unfortunately. Is the influencer economy a bubble? I don't think so. I think it's, like I said, it's an extension of other face work industries like modeling industry, acting industry, even um, exotic dancing, like sex work industry, like all of these industries where you're led by your aesthetic appeal and also your personality. I do fall in the camp of people to think it's the future of work because people are finding themselves more disenchanted from you know a regular nine to five and more disenchanted from like the traditional work, you know, like work lifestyle, that this is a way for people to attempt to become um, entrepreneurs and to have more flexibility in, in their lives. Like for example, I don't know if you noticed another project I did last year, um, OnlyFans blew up last year. Like once you couldn't do sex work physically in a safe way because of COVID-19, people started running to OnlyFans to promote themselves and to start careers on that. So we're seeing people like go to digital platforms as a way so they can have more autonomy over the way they spend their time and the way they work, especially as they may be caregivers for people in their life, they may have other responsibilities that a regular job is no longer able to help them facilitate. You know, if your manager tells you you need to be in by 10 or you get fired, like what can you do? When you're a digital entrepreneur, you kind of make your hours more. So I don't necessarily see it as a bubble, I do think that we haven't even seen the extent of the industry yet. I think we're just in like phase three of it and there's more phases to go beyond it because another thing that people don't consider when they talk about influencers is like, yeah, you see the picture that somebody posts on Instagram and they look cute. But when you are a full-time content creator, particularly like a fashion content creator, you do you know why you're, you go to like Forever 21's website or some some brands website and you see all these like pictures shot by people in their homes during COVID because now these brands don't have to spend money on their own production teams, right? You have an influencer do it and that influencer is serving as the stylist, the hair artist, the makeup artist, the location scout. Um, they may have a photographer or they may use a tripod but you got the role of at least six, seven people done by one person for a fraction of the cost. So brands will continue to lean on influencers because they make high quality content and they do it at a fraction of a cost and them creating their own production. And sometimes the innovation is even better than what sometimes brands come up with on their own. So I think this is just the beginning because economically, especially if you look at last year and how brands had to pivot their campaigns from like their larger productions to like tap in content creators to shoot content in their homes. Um, you're going to see a lot more of that when brands start to think about the economics of work and just how people like consumers kind of respond to influencers because they still, the authenticity thing is still there even as they become more celebrities, which is why you're also seeing celebrities 
try to become influencers by starting their own TikToks and their own YouTubes. These are just new revenue streams. And I think we haven't even seen the extent to which we can push it. I think that's the perfect place to conclude our conversation, Natalie. Thank you so much for making the time to share your really fascinating and timely uh, research with us. I can't wait for the book, <laughs> uh, which I know is a couple of years away because you're starting field work, but still um, really fascinating stuff. Um, for our listeners who want to keep up to date on what you're doing, your podcast, Share, share with us how, how people can keep in touch with, with you and what you're up to. Sure. Um, you know, go to my website at www.anulywashair.com. Anulywashair is also my handle for Instagram and Twitter, so you can follow me there. And you can also follow Black in Real Life, B-L-K-I-R-L, um, at the website blkirl.com, as well as the handles blkirl. Big news for me is that I recently was approved for the trademark of Black in Real Life. So that is my name. That is my baby. You will be seeing more coming from it. But um, Black in Real Life is a, I call it an audio docuseries that looks at the influencer economy and also just the way the culture is shared and negotiated. So last season was interviews with people that work as content creators or adjacent to it, like actors and marketers and writers. This next season that I'm currently in production on is about um, closer to my own research rooted in the city of Atlanta and kind of learning about um, the history of the city and its influence on American culture today. So I'm excited to share that with you later this fall. Amazing. Congratulations. Well, we're looking forward to thank you. That's been a year. I started last year on this. I just found out a few weeks ago. So thank you so much. Nice. Congrats. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, and yeah, looking forward to our next episode and for all you have in store, Annalisa. Thank you so much for spending your evening with us. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.